Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Today on Brand Story, Inc., we welcome Tavish Zausner-Manis, the Principal of Strategy and Operations at Evolution Media Capital, also known as EMC. Welcome, Tavish. Hey, Jay. How's it going? It's going great, man. I'm excited to jump in with you. And, and first, we need to do a little explaining of what Evolution Media Capital is and, and your role, which I understand you've built and you lead the research division that covers and analyzes all aspects of the technology, media, and telecom industry in the trades known as TMT uh, and provide unique commentary and insights on recent trends, key announcements, emerging themes across the obviously rapidly evolving sports, media, and entertainment ecosystem. So the research and the entirety of the research is easily accessible on the EMC website, uh, and you can get there via Tavish's Twitter feed, which is at TZM underscore TMT, at TZM underscore TMT, and you see additional thoughts, analysis, and data points there. So Tavish, as we jump in, um, you know, this is, it's a little complicated maybe for many of these folks to understand because there's a connection here with creative artists, but I'll do my best. So as I understand it, um, you focus on the sports, media, and entertainment industries. That is Evolution Media Capital does as creative artist agencies, Merchant Bank, and offering M&A advisory, industry research, capital raising services. Uh, and they've got an incredible who's who list of clients, including everyone from the NHL, Boston Celtics, Tennis Channel, Revolution Studios that just scratched the surface. So Tavish, that's my attempt at explaining it. How do you explain Evolution Media Capital to folks? Sure. So I kind of break it down to, to three buckets. So EMC is kind of the, the merchant banking arm uh, of CAA, Creative Artists Agency. So they're kind of the, one of the leading talent agencies in the world, and they kind of represent actors, um, actresses, athletes. Um, so EMC, EMC's role within that um, is kind of threefold, um, three kind of core uh, services that we provide. One is kind of uh, sports media rights advisory services. So mm-hmm. we'll work um, with sports leagues and teams and help negotiate their their media rights contracts with the various distribution partners. So whether it be kind of ESPN, Turner, mm-hmm. uh, Peacock, those type of companies. Uh, so that's one. Um, two is kind of the traditional investment banking um, division. Um, so we'll do M&A, kind of mergers and acquisition services and capital capital raises. Um, for companies kind of spanning the entertainment, um, media, sports mm-hmm. landscape. So it can be anything from helping to, to helping an institutional investor buy a stake in a professional sports team to selling a film library to raising capital uh, for a production company um, or kind of helping sell mm-hmm. a video game developer to a publisher. Um, so kind of pretty standard investment banking, but tr- just focus on, on this narrow focus of uh, sports media entertainment and then the third role is uh or the third bucket is a little bit smaller and it's kind of something we're just getting off the ground but that's more kind of um just building out an investment vehicle um Mm -hmm. we don't have a a structured fund but it's more kind of based off kind of the connections and network that we have we come across kind of proprietary deal flow and to the extent that we come across ones that might not fit from kind of an advisory standpoint um, the fact that we can make investments kind of help help the, these smaller companies grow they can turn into potential clients um, so that's kind of the third bucket that's a little bit smaller but we're looking to, to kind of grow that out over the coming years super cool well I'm excited to dive in and I think as I explained to you before we hopped on the pod like the audience here of being content studios either within media companies, right? Some that you mentioned, uh, we, we have sports media companies, news media companies, right? Um, we've got uh, brands themselves that have their own content studios and then agencies like ours at Teamworks that have content studios. And so I, I think the thing that really I'm excited about is uh, I came across Tavish via, we both were dubbed under or chronically underfollowed social media follows by Team Marketing Report. I went through the list and I was like, who's this guy? This is great. Look, look at all, he's got some really neat stuff. And on Evolution Media Capital's uh, website, they had really some awesome big picture trends that I haven't seen in one. They had 21 charts. Um, and even though uh, we're in February as, as this pop- podcast is being published, uh, 
it's still really relevant for, for 2021. And so these 21 charts really highlight key trends across the sports, media, and entertainment industries. Uh, I've put the link in our show notes at Teamworks Media's Content Hub, so you can find it there where you find the podcast, so you can check it out. But, but Tavish, let's dig in here. I'll tee you up on a few, and we'll see where it goes. Sure. Um, you know, I think digital media publishers, we'll start there, creating content, you know, they're looking to leverage have never had more buyers, right, in, in the current landscape right now with the explosion of streaming and, and everything that's happened in the last couple of years. Take us through your point of view on the streaming wars in terms of where are we and where do you see things going? Sure. Um, so the streaming wars, uh, first of all, kind of don't really like the term. Uh, <laughs> commonly used in, in kind of reverence, I think it, it kind of misconstrues kind of what's going on. Um, I think it kind of references kind of the, these battles or, or wars between the actual streaming companies themselves. So thinking that it might be a, a winner take all market, I think it's quite the opposite, uh, where I think there'll kind of be many, many winners eventually. Um, but for now, it's kind of just that they're early stages of streaming. I think everybody looks to, to Netflix, who's been around um, kind of streaming for over a decade, kind of producing their own original content um, for almost 10 years now, right. too. Um, but really the, the legacy media companies, so kind of Disney, um, NBC, CBS haven't, haven't really dove fully into to streaming until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically in the past, past two years, you've kind of seen, uh, Disney plus launch, you've had Peacock, HBO max, discovery plus, um, and then also kind of on the tech side, you, even Apple, um, is kind of joining the fold as well. Um, so there's definitely kind of been, um, a growing number of OTT services that have launched um, in the past two years, and and right now it's just it's just early. I think all these companies um, they'll need to adjust to a different kind of business model um, in terms of how they operate. I think previously with the legacy media companies, it's always been traditionally B two B, basically kind of selling their content um, through through the networks to kind of cable or satellite providers um, and kind of not worrying too much after that. They never had this direct relationship with, with kind of their audiences. There's always kind of been um, a different medium. Now with streaming, um, the goal is to kind of have this kind of direct-to-consumer relationship. It's not just moving content that would have been on the network onto kind of a, a digital mm-hmm. platform. Now they kind of have to shift their, their whole mindset and kind of take advantage of this kind of direct relationship. Um, and with that, you can kind of monetize it, just not um, not just in the in the same way. Um, you can kind of monetize it offline um, through through other things, just leveraging the the consumer data mm-hmm. and kind of information that you have. Um, so Disney Plus can easily kind of leverage what people are watching, kind of the, the biggest franchises, and use that to to market either kind of new content coming out or, or theme parks, um, and kind of build an ecosystem around the consumer mm-hmm. um, and kind of utilize that. Um, and as a result, kind of the streaming companies or these these media companies, they've really kind of changed the, the organization of their legacy businesses. So now where it used to be kind of the, the cable networks broadcasts all kind of did their own thing in terms of programming and development. Now everything's kind of being housed centrally. Uh, and then the, the company itself will kind of make uh, the right decision on where that content will best um, serve the company and add the most value. So it's not kind of a USA network kind of making those decisions. Now it's NBC kind of deciding, does this content play best uh, on USA or should Mm -hmm. we put it on Peacock? If we put it on Peacock, should it be in the free tier or should it be on premium? Um, So there are a lot more decisions being made and it's being kind of made holistically. Um, But as you kind of said, there's, it's very early, so everybody's kind of looking for content to kind of differentiate themselves um, and kind of stand out and acquire these customers. It's basically somewhat of a land grab. I mean, Netflix has over 200 million subscribers, but many of those, uh, that's globally um, mm-hmm. first. Um, and I think a lot of these streaming companies aren't even there yet. They're kind of fo- focusing domestically. Um, but customers will subscribe to, to multiple streaming services. Yeah, I think that's an interesting play, right? To the, the, the to your point, and if if we zoom out from streaming and, and include OTT and other things, you're looking at right. Um, it's an interesting kind of to your point. We're still so in the big picture, nascent, right? In terms of streaming, right. and 
and the whole ecosystem. And we'll dive in there in a minute. And I, I want to kind of dive in there. Uh, we'll pick a category like sports, which is something that I know both from a business and then, and, and I know you know, and then also from a uh, like from a subject matter that I think is an interesting one. We'll go there a little deeper. But there is this element of if you look at the ecosystem, right, the pricing like of the different OTT packages, you know, like the YouTube came out at 35, it's now 65. But like, it, it seems that, and I, I know you don't like the word streaming wars, it just seems that this whole notion of what used to be, you know, bundled cable, right, and now kind of a la carte streaming, and we're in this messy in-between phase of winners and losers over the long term trying to figure out their pricing models and what content goes where and 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 so I'm I'm curious just in terms of maybe a big picture timeline how do you look at that how do you look at that playing out over are are we in inning number 1 of the 9 inning game here or are we further down the road uh, no I think we're probably a little bit further down the road I mean there's definitely the the fragmentation that has been kind of ongoing I think it's kind of starting to accelerate a little bit probably in, in the past year probably and also I think probably the, the pandemic has played a part in kind of forcing mm-hmm. these changes maybe a little bit sooner than than the companies might have been doing it. Um, but there's no doubt they've they've kind of been moving this direction. I think the problem is that kind of the, the cable or that traditional kind of cable industry model um, kind of just threw off a, a ton of cash and these media companies didn't really want to disrupt themselves until it was kind of absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of now with cord cutting kind of continuing to, to rise, um, I think the time has come where, where these companies realize that it's kind of now is where they have to, to make drastic changes um, to, to the business to kind of capitalize and be one of those kind of long-term winners. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's still early. It's probably, I'd say, like second or third inning. Um, again, also, you have to consider, one, they're, they're kind of just launching maybe in the, in the U.S., but this is kind of now with these direct-to-consumer relationships, these companies are, are going to need to become a lot more global than maybe they've historically been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something that, that's probably not um, accounted for nearly as much. I think people focus a little, little bit too much on, on the, the U.S. market. Um, just because that's kind of where the, the cable industry has kind of always been a, a domestic thing that's not really mm-hmm. prevalent um, internationally, where it's kind of a little bit more free to air. Um, but now with the ability to kind of reach these consumers on, on, a, on, on a kind of direct basis, you have access to, to 6 billion people in the world. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the... The ultimate tam i don't think any company comes close to, to reaching that because you can't really right i don't think there's any content that's going to really serve everybody uh, or people who, who would have access um kind of the, the necessary broadband or kind of wireless infrastructure to, to consume the content um but there's definitely hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of people that are potential customers and i said netflix is probably furthest along and they only have 200 million right. <laughs> global right. subscribers right. i mean disney disney's had, had an incredible first year yeah. and they're um not even at 100 million um and then you have have others who are co- kind of closer um i think hbo has 60 million global subscribers um and then kind of less for kind of the, the smaller players so yeah, right that's now interesting. Kind of, that's, with the, the shift it's definitely kind of a little bit of, of a land grab of being able to to kind of get your product into the market um, in terms of kind of the, the OTT platform or service and kind of have wide distribution. But I think it's also essential for these companies to to maintain that d- direct relationship with the consumer. So it's not just distributing it um, through Roku or Amazon um, and kind of letting them kind of replace the, the cable companies as kind of the distributors and own the relationship. Um, it requires a little bit more effort um, and kind of, building out the product um, from the media companies themselves to, to kind of learn mm-hmm. um, things like churn, lifetime value. <laughs> These mm-hmm. are things that the companies never really thought about before. Yep. Um, so they have to kind of switch their mindset and it's going to take time. Um, I think they're obviously scale matters. Um, so companies like, like Disney and NBC are kind of well positioned. Um, but at the same time, the fact that, the direct consumer relationship kind of anybody can um 
access this this content really directly um, at low price points. There's definitely opportunities for kind of smaller companies um, to, to build uh, loyal followings um, and kind of if they can super serve smaller niche audiences um, that they can also monetize it not just through the streaming platform but again through through a variety of different ways you're speaking my language man niche right <laughs> like niche within the yeah. niche i mean that's where i tend to go like where you've got all these large power players it's finding that those really powerful um engaged communities right and so i, I want to go there and and i think uh we're going to get to sports in a second but let's talk social media one of your charts highlights the reduction of advertising dependency from the platforms. Tee up the social media platform statuses for us um, and, and maybe through slightly through the lens of a, of a media publisher or a content company uh, with that lens on. But we're, we're, talk to us about that. I thought that chart was interesting. Sure. Uh, yes, I mean, obviously, um, the social media companies have always um, offer their service for free, basically, in, in exchange for kind of advertising based off kind of consumer data. And there's mm-hmm. kind of a lot of regulatory scrutiny kind of coming into play around that um, in terms of kind of how how these companies utilize data. Um, you kind of see it a little bit with kind of the, the battles with, with IDFA coming out um, and Facebook and Apple. Um, but I think o- over the past year or two, um, there's been kind of a shift. Um, first, kind of advertising has been moving to more of a, a direct response to so kind of um, performance marketing rather than kind of the generic brand advertising. It's more about kind of c- continuing to to engage with these audiences and kind of know um, kind of know what they're doing, kind of being able to determine and target specific audiences that that match with the advertisers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now what we're seeing is kind of the the next evolution of that. Um, so I think all these different companies are kind of doing somewhat different things so you have facebook who's kind of going strong into into commerce right mm-hmm. so they have like instagram is basically the, the new shopping mall mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you can buy directly um through there they have facebook shops where and, and they cater a lot to these small small businesses across the world um basically offering them kind of their vast um basically leveraging their their vast network of, of users um, and the data comes with it to, to target kind of the most relevant or most um, optimal consumers for, for those businesses. Um, you have somebody like Twitter is a little bit smaller. Um, they're kind of moving towards subscription. Um, so I think they just acquired a, a small newsletter company yep. called Review um, and then kind of going into, into long form um, content. So I think Twitter, I think, has always been kind of a little bit um, of a a company that's based off kind of small bursts mm-hmm. of li- little content. Now it's kind of moving um, away towards kind of th- this newsletter model. I think they also acquired a, an audio company or a team mm-hmm. called Breakers that's kind of focused on the podcast space and they introduce audio tweets. Um, so it's all kind of diversifying away from their core product that's kind of based off kind of the traditional advertising or the digital advertising model that's worked. Um, and kind of using that in different ways. And then TikTok um, is kind of leveraging um, the expertise that, that ByteDance has in China with the video commerce. So mm-hmm. they're kind of using, again, commerce directly into the video um, to encourage, instead of advertising, you have kind of these consumers directly buying the goods. Yeah, it's um, interesting. So- Talking to our colleagues at Facebook and Instagram, you know, behind the curtain, that's one of the things that's clearly a priority for them in 2021 is kind of e-commerce and while no one knows the secret sauce algorithms, it's pretty obvious that those who are kind of employing some of those e-commerce tactics are getting rewarded with, as it relates to the content, right? Since it's a priority, um, the the ever-moving puck priority uh, du jour of the platforms right now, Facebook and Instagram feels like the that e-commerce component is a is a yeah. front and center. Yeah all about kind of keeping the users on the platform longer right yeah so it's not like these companies haven't been able to, like in the past they've kind of offered through advertising in other ways yeah. they've offered discovery aspect right so you'll go there you'll go to twitter you'll or facebook yep. you'll find something that that you like or, or that's interesting that you want to buy or that you want to read now 
usually they'd have links that would send you off platform. So you'd go to Substack, you go to walmart.com mm-hmm. to, to buy these things or to read these things. And now what they're doing is kind of integrating these tools or new features that kind of keep the user on their platform within their ecosystem and kind of controlling more of the flow. So it's kind of directly from discovery through checkout. Hmm. You know, you mentioned Substack and I want to go there. One of your charts, one of the 21 charts uh, that Evolution Media Capital has is goes deep on the creator economy and the ability for influencers to monetize their wares, Uh, you know, whether this is Substack or other mediums. Uh, Take us through the status of thought leadership and how they're best to think about monetizing their content and influence in 2021. And, you know, you, you even mentioned one of them, right? Twitter acquiring uh, this news, newsletter company and kind of integrating in there. But h- how do you look at it through those lenses of people who have strong, loyal followings that are actually trying to monetize that? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of comes down to this kind of bifurcation between discovery and monetization. So I think a lot of the, the big social media platforms have always been good or kind of better at discovery. You can kind of go there. The, the algorithm's going to... Mm-hmm over time kind of what your interest may may like maybe like and kind of serve you that type of content um and then kind of the the creators themselves the, they'll put their content on these platforms to, to build audiences um but they've never really been able to kind of directly monetize so even kind of you look at like the the first evolution of influ- influencers on instagram right a lot of branded content sponsored posts mm-hmm. um that was always kind of done off platform really kind of going through agencies whether it be instagram kind of facilitating that mm-hmm. or even for, for local ones um so if you're in a small town um of ten thousand people probably not big enough um for these platforms to, to really pay much attention to um but there's still opportunity to kind of monetize um a loyal and kind of um mm-hmm. engaged audience so they'll kind of work with local businesses to for sponsor post giveaways. Um, but it's kind of time consuming to, to do both, to kind of create the content and, uh, and also go out and kind of source the, these yeah. opportunities. Um, so now with kind of these emerging platforms, so whether it be um, Patreon, um, OnlyFans, Substack, um, you can kind of produce the content itself um, and then directly monetize it. So usually through kind of a subscription model um, or whether it be kind of some type of donation or, or tipping. Um, but the problem, while it kind of, it helps these um, creators kind of be able to, to kind of build an audience and, and or more monetize their audience, it's tough for them to actually build it on these yeah. platforms yeah. Um, just because these services are kind of catering towards the creator, right? So they're building tools that, that help monetize it. Um, but on the other side, you need to have an audience to monetize, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> like you can put all the content yep. out there if nobody's reading it, um, you're not going to make any money. So they're helping them on one point, but it's kind of tough to also build out um, the kind of, I guess, the, the reader, the, the consumer point as well, um, because they while they kind of work hand in hand, it's kind of a matter of who, what, what side gets prioritized and how. Um, and again, the discovery con- kind of comes with more content and more people using the platform. So as Substack grows its writer counts, more people will kind of come to, to read it. And then the the scale of the network, kind of you can leverage that to kind of yeah. figure out more ways um, to help new users discover other writers on the platform. It kind, like it, Tavish, it kind of reminds me of podcasting. Probably the most common conversation I have with prospective new business clients, especially in the content marketing space, that part of our business, is the people coming to the table, it's almost like they, like we need a podcast or we want a podcast. And you start talking them through like the actual recording, what we're doing here, it, it's not that hard. It's not that expensive. It's not that complicated. The work going up to it, to do it and make it good, and then most importantly, getting it in front of the right audience is extremely hard and takes a lot of time, right? And it's like, it's it's to your point, it's like there's such um, disparate uh, groupings of tools and people and influencers out there right now. There's, a, there's still this 
there's still this like wild west. And so we're talking about podcasts. I'm kind of jumping all over the place here. I'm a huge fan of uh, Kevin Jones, what they're doing at Blue Wire, really smart guys. We had them on the podcast. Um, you know, the podcast industry, as you know, is in the big picture, it's still a relatively small slice of the overall pie, but boy, does it have a lot of momentum going on. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your take on the consolidation of the disparate businesses and, and podcasts right now. Um, and, you know, is it similar to what we talked about before with streaming? Do you see it being um, gobbled up into a couple of main players? Um, what advice do you have for those that are actually in the podcast game right now that are trying to actually build their brand and set the stage for us what the podcast market looks like in 2021? Um, so, I mean, obviously Spotify has kind of been leading the charge uh-huh. uh, podcast. I, I think um, they've been quite aggressive in their, their acquisitions, both from kind of a content stand, standpoint, kind of mm-hmm. acquiring Gimlet and the ringer, uh, but also kind of from um the, the tech infrastructure and tools. So whether it be um, kind of megaphone, I think they just acquired that, that gives them services, Anchor FM, they acquired last year. Um, so kind of building out the whole tech stack mm-hmm. um, for more um, creators to kind of create podcasts and, and distribute it through Spotify. Um, and I think Spotify is kind of using it um, twofold. One is kind of a way to differentiate their service. Um, from the likes of Apple Music or Amazon Music, just because with a lot of the the music streaming companies, a lot of the content's the same because it's all coming from the three three or four major record labels. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, their kind of licensing costs um, that are pretty standard, where kind of seventy percent of their revenue is going directly to the labels. So the margins uh, on that are thin. So the podcasts are a way to one differentiate, mm-hmm. bring bring consumers um, or subscribers into the platform either through free where they can monetize through ads or kind of mm-hmm. eventually up into the subscription tier. Um, the second is kind of th- this advertising play. Um, and then built, I think podcasts are always kind of been ad based based around kind of host read ads, mm-hmm. um, which have limited inventory and kind of are kind of stale, I guess you say, like mm-hmm. basically <laughs> you're, if you don't listen right away. Is this, the part, is this the part where I drop in a, a, an ad? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a cut of that. There you go. Awesome. So from an ad standpoint, um, because there's a, a wealth of content and these host reds ad don't have much um, longevity, mm-hmm. um, basically kind of insert or kind of creating this new kind of dynamic ad insertion tool where they can kind of take what you see that's prevalent in kind of the, the digital world in terms of targeting um, and kind of changing ads based off kind of the consumer and they can again leveraging um the data from their listeners um in terms of kind of whether it be location or interest um and kind of increase inventory and kind of be able to build out that the podcast advertising industry as a whole really um but kind of being a leader in that and kind of trying to to capture the, the biggest share of it as as the market grows you know, it's like playing whack-a-mole. I'm, I'm talking with um, Tavish Zausner-Manis of Evolution Media Capital. And it's like, pick a topic, any topic in the media space, and let's go deep on it. And you're like, let's go, man. I love this. So I'm going to go, <laughs> going to keep it up. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, trigger my ADD here. Now we're going to move over to sports, like I was promising. You're well steeped in this category. I am too. I thought, it, you know, there's an entire shoulder programming economy of sports, right? You've got... Um, Barstool, you mentioned The Ringer, you've got Whistle Sports. There's there are all of these companies that um, have emerged in the last 10 to 15 years, whether they're personality-based, um, they're digital media publishers that have, you know, obviously they're not rights holders. Um, there's this whole, like, I call them shoulder programming, you know. But as, it, as we look at the actual major media companies and sports rights that's going on there, it feels like we're at this... I don't know. I'm curious for your take on this. It feels like we're maybe finally approaching a bubble equivalent of of mainstream media company rights deals. I think ESPN was reducing. Turner spent uh, increase for MLB. ESPN was kind of downshifting a little bit on Major League Baseball. Um, You know, again, other rights like NFL are going through the roof and they just continue to go up and up and up. Where do you see sports rights deals going and company investments, as well as kind of the ancillary support media companies 
um, around this space? Where are we and where do you see it going? Yeah, uh, so the sports media rights, I mean, it's kind of been constantly growing. And I think people have always kind of, I think every year people say it's a, a bubble that's going to pop and the, the rights fees kind of keep going up and up. Um, but I think you got to take a closer look at it, at um, kind of the, the different sports. I mean, you can't treat them all the same. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing now is kind of a, a little bit of, of a, a, a divergence where some some sports are kind of continuing that aggressive climb and kind of the, these rights deals where others might see kind of a, a slowing down. So the NFL, um, probably the, the most valuable property <laughs> or right. sports property right. in the world, um, their rights fees, um, might double basically um for for the for their next deal which it which is upcoming um and that's clearly because of their their value to these legacy media companies and, and the value to the, kind of the, the cable ecosystem um i think if you look at like the top 50 broadcasts um yep. on tv over the past few years um 75 percent of them are nfl games yep they just command such a, a significant audience um that it's hard to to kind of hard to kind of stay away from them um, and kind of pay whatever is, is necessary. Um, and especially as more content gets shifted to OTT and streaming, kind of that gap between the NFL and other types of program is, is, is really only going to grow. I think um, even if ratings, NFL ratings do decline somewhat, um, their, their kind of lead is just so significant um, that these media companies are going to kind of pay what's necessary to, to keep those rights or kind of add new packages if if they can. Um, but as a result of that, and because the NFL is so valuable, uh, it just doesn't leave much money to, to go around for, for other sports, mm-hmm. um, whether it be kind of the, these other tier one um, leagues, whether mm-hmm. it be kind of the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, or, or even the MLS. Um those deals will get a little bit trickier. And I think the the networks are going to have to kind of figure out um, what sports and kind of what properties they really want to invest in that they think they can drive the needle. Um, and it's also a combination of kind of with these rights deals coming up, how do you kind of leverage the, the, the rights for building out your kind of streaming platform? So it's not just kind of acquiring rights to, to air on your broadcast right. station or, or your cable network. It's what can you get to put on ESPN plus? What can you put on Paramount plus? What can you put on Peacock? Yep. Um, and kind of using that as kind of a, a customer acquisition tool for these kind of nascent platforms. Um, the problem is that they're not going to be able to put the, the biggest or best games on it mm-hmm. um, because there's not a significant audience there. Um, so it's tough to really monetize and the leagues themselves. They want their content um, kind of on the networks because those are reaching 70 million homes still. Yeah, um, I could do a whole, I'm gonna make a note here. I could do a whole podcast on um, US property rights, right? Sports property rights, and then social media. Like we haven't even talked about that, right? Which is the third screen experience of, right? If you're on Twitter, you're, I'm a big college football fan, and it's part of the experience, right? Communicating in real time. and. It's just interesting to see how different each of the sports leagues are approaching and experimenting on the social platforms with their content while trying to maintain value for their rights holders, right, and not give stuff away, right? Like to it's it's exactly. such an interesting needle to thread. Yeah, and I think the NBA has probably been one of the the most aggressive in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been early on kind of putting out like highlights on on Twitter. Yep. Um, and then kind of going to, to, to square mending with like micro transactions where you can buy access to the last quarter yep. or kind of half a game. Um, I mean, even kind of building out kind of a global kind of direct to consumer product through, through leak pass. Um, I think they've kind of paved the way, but as you said, it's also um, these fans. Um, I think you also need to, to figure out how you super, super serve kind of your, your hardcore fans and the sports leagues kind of need to figure out how to, how to do that outside of the game itself. I think those, the ratings as they kind of continue to, to decline a little bit, um, you kind of have to engage with these fans uh, on other mediums or kind of outside that three hour window. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
to keep their attention. I mean, NBA, like their free agency period is kind of one of the the most active times of the year for them, even though there are no games being played. Right. So what can you do to kind of build um, more interest in that um, and kind of figure out ways to, to try and engage the audience more, kind of bring more casual fans in, or kind of how do you kind of increase monetization of kind of the these super fans who kind of live and breathe this stuff every day? Well, I think one thing that's changed, and, and I've got two more questions for you here uh, on the home stretch. One of the things that's, if I were to pick one of the top three media storylines of 2020 going to 2021, it's sports gambling. And uh, the rat race going on with sports media companies and everyone's pairing up. It's like uh, everyone's grabbing their dance partner right now in terms of gambling companies, either partnerships or acquisitions. Uh, what's your take on sports gambling and how this is going to uh, impact both just the industry in general? What's it going to do from a um, you know media company valuation perspective all, all across the board? How, where do you look at sports gambling right now in the early stages of 2021? Yeah, I mean, so there's been basically a, a ton of excitement about, about the space since kind of it, it got legalized um, in 2018. Um, and I think that's kind of just accelerated um, over the past probably year to just as more states have kind of um, passed legislation allowing for, for online gambling. But then also, as we saw last year, just kind of the partnerships being formed between kind of the, the sports books and the media companies kind of legitimizes it a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, not even just the media companies, but also kind of the, the various teams um, as well, teams and leagues. Um, so it kind of just le- legitimizes it as a business. So it's kind of been considered uh, a little bit of a vice where kind of these companies very, very clearly kind of stayed away, um, mm-hmm. even just from kind of mentioning it on their broadcasts. So now they're they're all kind of taking various different approaches to, to leaning into it a little <laughs> bit more. Um, yeah, we went we went from not talking about you know executive producers in this in the you know the suits saying do not mention point spread in the telecast to a day very near future where we're going to be having prop bets on play by play with lower third graphics right like it's right. just it's you can see it coming a mile away. Yeah, I mean Amazon's already doing a little bit of it, kind of with their their football their Thursday night football broadcast. I mean, it's still a little bit more kind of that the free to play, but you can kind of see graphics on what's this next mm-hmm. kind of play going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'll kind of see sports gambling get integrated even more to these telecasts. I mean, you look what Sinclair is doing. Um, their partnership with Bally's yep. um, made it kind of clear that. Um, betting is going to be kind of forefront of this new kind of direct-to-consumer streaming service that they're building. Um, and I think they have kind of an advantage because um, of the RSN focus, which is kind of state-by-state based, yeah. uh, kind of plays into the ability um, to leverage where there are states that have legalized so you can kind of be more active in that. The problem with the, the big media companies a little bit is because of their, their national reach, um, you have to kind of segment it towards states or audiences that have the ability um, to to gamble legally online. Yeah, super Um, smart move by Bally's, right? To your point, just when he says RSN, he's talking about the regional sports network. So Bally's, just for clarity's sake, um, they did a naming rights deal. I think it was like $86 million, $8 million a year or something like that, um, where the former Fox Sports Detroits are now going to be, you know, Bally's (laughs) Sports Detroit. And, you know, to Tavish's point, what's really interesting here is if you think about that, these are hyper-local fans, right, who will be able to, um, in a state-by-state basis where gambling is legal, you'll be able to cherry-pick and do experimentation from Bally's in terms of, you know, on a a hyper-local basis, which is an inherent challenge for the national players. You can't do that over over a – just – yet over a general telecast, right? It gets really complex. So that's a, that's definitely one to watch. Um, right now, I've got my eyes on that. It's it's a fascinating partnership. And, yeah, I think it's important to note, like, the the sports gambling business isn't the, the greatest of businesses. Um, it's pretty a pretty low-margin business and kind of a, a high volume or high revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of one of the reasons for that is that it has kind of high customer acquisition costs. So there's yeah. a ton of money being spent on on marketing um to consumers to, to kind of bring them traditionally to bring them mm-hmm. into the casino not to kind of bring them online mm-hmm. um, but now what you see kind of if you look at like pen acquiring barstool basically they're kind of 
instead of outsourcing their media, they're kind of owning it. Yep. Um, so they, they kind of, Barstool can do all the marketing um, for their sports book, and now it's not an expense, it's a revenue item. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I think we'll see more of that where kind of the, the sports books might lean a little bit more um, into acquiring smaller media properties that have kind of a devoted audience mm-hmm. and they can kind of leverage that media property to, to build their, their marketing. Um, the key is having that audience that overlaps with kind of the, the gambling kind of segment that, that you're targeting. I think Barstool is kind of a unique property in that yeah. sense um, because it's kind of the, the foundation of what that company was built off of. Um, there's not a ton of many other Barstools like the companies like Barstool out there. Hey, yo, Barstool uh, has become like the Starbucks or Southwest Airlines of media publishers. Like the amount of times I'm heard, I, I'm in conversations all the time where people are saying, you know, we want a Barstool like thing, but we don't have the money. It's like, okay, you can't like everyone wants a Barstool. Like, it's a unicorn, right? I mean, the amount of things that went right for them to be right place, right time. And Billy, it's so funny. It's just kind of like somebody talking about marketing and like Starbucks and using Southwest Airlines as their examples. It's like, give me another example, right? Okay, let's like, you know, I, I give Barstool credit for building the empire they've built in the way that they, you know, uh, the way they've gone about it. But I mean, it's like, come on, there are other examples out there that, um, and this isn't a knock on you, I'm talking about, it comes up all the time. It's, it's like the brass ring of community engagement yeah i mean right? i think it's an aspirate like it's a concrete exit yeah. uh, for kind of these digital publishers is something to to kind of look for especially kind of you saw maybe um over the past kind of few years um i think kind of whatever five ten years ago kind of the, the valuations or interest in these digital publishers were, were pretty high yep. uh, but we've seen kind of um big media companies write down their investments and whether it be kind of vice or or bustle or buzzfeed mm-hmm. um verizon media and uh, and oath um those businesses probably aren't um able to scale as big as many people kind of anticipated mm-hmm. um i think now there's just more consolidation going on um and i think the publishers kind of have to figure out kind of what their what their right strategy is um and i think kind of i think kind of the, the theme of what we've kind of been talking about is kind of having this kind of direct-to-consumer relationship. I think the power of the, the internet um, is kind of still pretty unheralded um, where mm-hmm. you can kind of own your audience. Um, and I think that's the most important thing uh, for these yeah. publishers or for any company is to kind of have a, a brand um, that's authentic. Um, you can kind of develop an audience and kind of the, the audience will tell you how how they can be monetized, right? Yep. Um, you have that direct relationship with them. Um, they'll tell you they want to listen to podcasts. They want to buy merchandise. Um, mm-hmm. So I think being able to, to have that relationship and kind of having the, the authenticity as well um, and kind of knowing knowing what the audience may want and kind of listening to them, um, I think that's kind of the, the, the focal point of the strategy. Yeah. Um, and kind of having that kind of lead the way a little bit of how these publishers kind of navigate the world rather than trying to rely on new platforms, whether it be kind well, yeah, of like pivot I, to video, pivot to Facebook, yep. right? I think before you, you mentioned this before, and I want to, you know, we'll, we'll end here. And I just want to ask you a personal question before we jump off. But I think, you know, I, I always talk about this. It's it's the, the, the companies that got written down, right? The the BuzzFeeds and the Vices and the ones you mentioned. Those were all scale plays, right? Look how big right. we are. Look at the numbers. And Barstool isn't... Eyeballs, the, like these average monthly audiences, right? That's kind of where yeah. the value, which is kind of similar to what these linear ratings were. Like how much viewership do you have? But I, but I, but I, I beg to differ on the the premium component here, and we'll go back to Barstool. I, I use this example all the time, and you'll beat me up because it's a fictitious number, right? But Barstool, if you know El Presidente or Portnoy says, you know what, um, I want you to buy this shirt tomorrow. Go buy this shirt. Fifty thousand people go and buy that shirt, and they spend twenty bucks on the shirt, which is a million dollars of revenue. The value is not a million dollars. The value of that is. 25, 50, 100 times that. The ability to have the trust in an audience that when you say jump, they say how high is really kind of what people are talking about when they're talking about the bar stool. And I, I, I you know, exactly. this is what I talk about in this podcast. It's like 
there are extraordinarily valuable communities that are very small in number that are ex- to the right audience extraordinarily valuable right um yep. and so and i think that's where the focus needs to be and how we use insights that you have and that evolution media capital have around where the market's going to kind of guide us to make sure that we don't that, that we're staying on top of things um as opposed to trying to just you know be all things to all people, right? I actually think you go bigger by being smaller and focused on a particular audience that you can just, to your point, that they will guide you and you have a direct relationship with them and they will help you build that community with you. At least that's 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 my spiel. But, oh, I, I agree. And, and those, those that audience, they're not just kind of the, the consumers, they, they're marketers as well. I mean, as they buy these t-shirts, they're kind of walking around. Exactly. <laughs> They help sell the, the brand on your behalf. Yep. Um, so cool. Uh, there are kind of ways to to scale it. I mean, it's always tough with the the niche yeah. audience, niche segments. How big can they really get? Um, but the audiences don't need to be that big if you can monetize them in in various different ways and through various different distribution yep. methods or. I point to Sean Griffey, a guy who runs and built a really successful company called Marketing Dive, where they're in like twenty different segments. Right, and they they're they're B two B. It's a media publisher, the, the education, transportation industries, and he's built a platform. It's it's you know they, they add new industries all the time, and I love I heard him on Digiday. And he talks about this all the time. They're profitable businesses. Each one, you know, some of them are one million in revenue, up to three or four million. He's got twenty of them, and you but they're high. They're good margin businesses, and when you do that, you know what. What's wrong with a hundred million dollar media company that's profiting? You know, I'm making up the numbers. I don't know. Twenty five. It's got a net profit of twenty five. That's a pretty good business, as opposed to some of these companies that are, you know, bringing in a hundred million and spending three hundred million and are hanging on to some um, exit value that they're going to make all their money back on. Right. Uh, I mean, it's just there's just practical components around community engagement. So, well, listen, we're going a little heavy here. So, my last question for you. Tavish is of these 21 charts, which I highly um, recommend folks check out. Uh, I'll have the link to them in the show notes. Which one is there one that jumped out for you for the, the media publishing industry um, of the 21? That's kind of a bellwether for what you see kind of symbolic of where you see things going in 2021. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought the the chart on the, the just chatting channel on Twitch was pretty interesting in terms of how that's kind of grown over the past year and kind of, become one of the the biggest or the biggest channel on on the platform i think twitch has been always known as kind of this home for for video game content mm-hmm. uh, i think now it's starting to evolve into so much more than that i think that's partly helped because the video games themselves have become more kind of these social experiences so now so explain people- it because i'm not familiar with it so can you give me the 30 second version of it sure so uh, video games have become um, proponent on kind of live services so kind of rather than buying some physical disc up front and playing it for 30 hours and being done with it now kind of the publishers are constantly updating these games mm-hmm. so you kind of have and kind of monetizing through kind of um, micro transactions so buying a new season pass a new skin um, stuff like that um, but more they're becoming kind of these, these open worlds so you have games I mean I think that the clearest example is kind of among us um, which kind of burst um, was kind of released initially in 2018, uh, but really burst onto the scene in late 2020. Um, and basically, you have whatever eight to ten players come on, and they kind of they play a game. But after each round, there's kind of this this dialogue of kind of who this the, the imposter is. It's kind of like a, a murder mystery of sorts online. Um, to, to, to our basic explanation. Each round, there's kind of a dialogue of trying to figure out who, who the po- imposter is. But more of these games are kind of becoming open worlds where you kind of go and hang out. And the video game itself is kind of secondary in nature. Um, you kind of look at things like Fortnite. Fortnite kind of introduced a party royale mode that doesn't even have guns or shooting or, or fighting. Mm-hmm. People just hang out with each other. Um, so video games have become more of a, a social experience. Interesting. Uh, and Twitch... And has always been known for for kind of gaming content. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the the biggest streamers are all kind of playing games, but also kind of interacting with their audience, right? So you have Twitch chats that that are kind of constantly um, people are engaging with that, kind of writing in, sending 
um, donations. Um, there's there's tipping involved, but just chatting the channel where there's no there's just kind of a live streamer uh, mm-hmm. without not playing any video game. Um, kind of sets up a broadcast that that channel has been kind of the, the most popular on Twitch in 2020. Um, so I think it's just kind of might be an inflection point where more um, streamers that aren't from the gaming industry kind of leverage that platform um, to try and build an audience really mm. just because it's early stages. I mean, th- again, discovery is always going to be an issue. Um, right. You can kind of move move there early, especially kind of from a brand standpoint. I think you've kind of seen some of these, uh, I think international soccer teams have been kind of building out Twitch channels um, themselves, mm-hmm. showing kind of highlights and stuff like that. And I think um, there's an opportunity to get moved to that platform a little bit earlier. Um, and I think the advantage of that over kind of some of these other platforms, like whether it be right. Facebook or Twitter is kind of th- this interactivity. Um, like you're, you're going on live and you can kind of speak directly to your audience. Yeah, you're, you're building a community yep. in real time, like a, a legit community. Well, that's fascinating. Well, Tavish, I got to ask you, my final question for you is, I, I mentioned it before, but it's like um, yeah, whack-a-mole. Pick a topic and you can go deep on it. So how the hell do you stay on top of industry trends what social follows newsletters walk me through your morning on how you possibly fire hose all of this information um yeah it takes a lot of time um i don't really have too much of a routine i mean i think usually i'll kind of check a lot of the the big publications um Mm -hmm. whether it kind of be like wall street journal bloomberg new york times kind of figure out kind of what's going on in the broader market Mm -hmm. um but for each of these industries that I cover, I mean, I try and dig into kind of industry-specific publications that, that cover them. So um, whether it be kind of music looking to, to build, billboard and stuff like that. And then what I try and do is kind of look through the lens of data, really, to kind of inform my decision. So mm-hmm. a lot of kind of spent on uh, trying to find different reports that are kind of covering these areas that kind of identify what the different trends are and kind of use that and kind of tie that to kind of recent deals that are kind of being announced in the public. Um, but I wouldn't say I have any, any go-tos. I think that the market itself kind of dictates where I look. If yeah. I kind of draw something that's interesting, I'll, I'll kind of dive in a little bit more and kind of see what else is there. Um, it's basically kind of a constant curiosity to figure out what's going on and what's going to come up next really. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, can't thank you enough. Tavish Sausner-Manis from Evolution Media Capital spent uh, 50 minutes with us just going deep on 2021. Highly recommend you check out the 21 charts. As I said, I've got them linked at the Teamworks Media Content Hub, uh, you know, and you can click through wherever you consume these podcasts. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you want more of, less of. Uh, potential guest episodes and topics I'm all ears until next time Tavish thank you so much for joining us appreciate it thanks for having me on thanks for listening to Brand Story Inc we'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn LinkedIn